So, end of the first trilogy. Written by Chris Black and David Goodman. I mentioned him a few times. In fact, this is Goodman's final contribution to Enterprise. I would say Star Trek, but that's a little more debatable. And I'm pretty sure he went on to work in Orville, since he ended up going off with Seth MacFarlane, who actually has a cameo, a speaking cameo, no less, in this episode. I just want to comment on that really quick, because Seth MacFarlane is someone who I just can't stand his humor at all. But I actually have tremendous respect for as a person and as a creator. The man is a gargantuan science fiction in general, and Star Trek in particular, geek, and has tilted his considerable resources, effort, and creativity over the years into trying to explore that particular space, culminating, some might argue, in Orville, which quite a few people would argue is the actual continuation of Star Trek. That's debatable, of course, and I don't want to get into that argument. After all, I haven't seen the Orville, <laughs> just like I haven't seen the new Star Trek. I mean, I, I work 12-hour days. What do you want from me? I don't have time to watch TV. Anyways, <clears throat> this is also directed by LeVar Burton, which explains a lot. Because this, the previous two episodes were not exactly macro, but both of them were far more about the stakes and the more large-scale issues going on. You know, the first episode was all about the big chance against the weapon, which failed, darkest moment. The second episode was all about trying to deal with the ethical ramifications of what must be done, finally properly expressed. This episode, while there is a threat in this episode, there's actually two, this episode is all about the characters, really zooming the camera in, especially on two of them in particular, Degra and Tucker. Two uh, engineers. I wonder if that was on purpose. <sighs> we have... Now, what's funny is this episode isn't as good as the previous two, in my opinion. But most of that is because the first chunk of the episode is surprisingly weak. But when it nails the character beats, oh, it really nails them. The cold open is a good example of what I'm talking about. The cold open's pretty weak. It's Archer giving a speech... And I don't know, maybe it's Bacula, maybe it's the writers, maybe they just don't know what they're doing. Archer is not good at giving speeches. Now, we all know Picard, he's pretty much well-known for giving speeches. You know, that's, that's kind of his main weapon of choice. But even Kirk was actually pretty good at speechifying every now and again. And, you know, Archer feels a little bit more Janeway, if I was to be blunt about it, to put it into specific perspective. I don't know. It just kind of sits there and is is what it is. So it's dumb. Moving on. This cuts to Tucker being told he has to write a letter for Taylor. He resists, but no, no, you're going to write this. And Tucker's like, okay. This then leads to a brief scene with T'Pol, where we find out that her withdrawal symptoms are gone. Man, that was fast. <laughs> That's it's like the lightest drug re recovery I've ever seen. Of. I, I mean, I know this is Star Trek and they have you know, tech to help them bypass withdrawal symptoms, but damn. But it's okay, because the lasting effects are still there. She's still feeling emotions, and her previous methods of control are not working as well. So, we do still have consequences. So I'm willing to let this slide. We then see that... Uh, actually, I want to comment on something really quick here. So I check my notes to verify my thoughts. She, uh... She's becoming more Spock-like. And I don't mean Spock literally. What I mean is the archetype. Uh, it's an archetype that Star Trek actually usually does pretty well. Some of their best character moments have been done with this archetype. It's the person who is split between two worlds, right? The hybrid. 
I've talked about this before. Seven was a hybrid. Uh, arguably, both Quark and Odo were hybrids. You know, Quark being torn between being the true Ferengi and being himself. You know, Odo being torn between the solids and the founders. You get the idea. But because so much work has been done to distance T'Pol from being a typical Vulcan, she is quickly becoming a hybrid. Uh, not literally. I don't mean she's morphing and, and then, then she can, she can invite the super vampire. No, what I mean is the fact that she is becoming this archetype of having one foot in two different worlds. Frankly, I think this is a good archetype. You know, we, we've, we've talked before about how Star Trek Knight likes to have the captain, the commander, the security person, the royal smart person, the doctor. You know, the engineer, there's like these, these roles that are pretty consistent throughout basically all of Trek, and for good reason and for bad. But I do think certain specific archetypes work quite well in Trek are the kind of things that I would insist on including going forwards. And the hybrid, one, one foot in both worlds, or more than one world at, at that point, uh, is something that I think works very well because there's a lot of storytelling potential there. And a lot of that boils down to a very human and understandable relatable concept. Identity. Did Spock identify as Vulcan? Well, yeah. But his character arc was about him coming to embrace and accept the rest of him. The alien side of him, aka the human side of him, and trying to come to terms with that. An arc that frankly took him all the way from old TOS up to Star Trek VI. So, and we see that some of them tend to have similar arcs, but in some cases they're not always the same because they don't need to be. You know, you don't have to be both. You can pick a side. You can identify with one side or another. You don't have to be directly in the middle either. You can be primarily this with a little bit of this, or primarily this with a little bit of this, and so forth and so on, right? And so I do like this push for T'Pol. And I honestly don't remember what they're going to do with it in the, for in the future. Specifically, I know that she's going to be involved in the Vulcan story arc over in Season 4. Spoilers, there's a Vulcan story arc in Season 4. But I don't remember specifics for her, so we'll have to see how much influence this moment has and how many consequences this have after the credits roll. This then leads to Degra. I love how Degra is just very to the point. He, you know, the other gentleman, who's actually apparently a scientist, uh, I, I looked up his name. I looked up his name. What, what, I wrote it down. Uh, I wrote it down somewhere. Please tell me I wrote it down somewhere. I know I wrote down the other guy's name somewhere. Oh my god, you've got to be kidding me. Uh, I swear it was like Tanar or Dinar. I'm just going to look it up. This is stupid. I did. I swear I looked this up. I swear I did. Hang on. Janar. There it is. Janar. Okay, found it. Janar <laughs> is apparently also a scientist, but comes across as far more of a politician, far more of a cynic, if you will. It's interesting because Jannar does still clearly believe this. He still thinks this is the correct call. He's been kind of cautioning this since the beginning, and he's been one of the most reasonable members of the Council since all the way back in the Zindi, the first episode of the season. Well, the second episode of the season. You know what I mean. So it's just he's being rigorous. Now that's interesting, because Degra is being embracing. Degra just wants this to be true. Desperately needs this to be true. I talked about that previously. By contrast, Janar is like, well, it would be interesting if this is true, but let's make sure first. And thus the two have a different approach, despite both being in agreement and both being aligned on this one. There's a bit later on in the episode where, you know, Degra goes ahead and destroys the reptilian ship. 
And Archer is just, there's this moment of shock, like, what? Destroyed the ship. Because they didn't intend to. But Degra says, we had to. We had no choice. Notice Jannara is right there when he says that. It is implied, although not stated outright, that Jannara was consenting to this. Because it is it is the correct call. They did need to destroy that ship. It would have de- detrimented everything going forwards if they hadn't. So... Yeah, this is that. This, my, my point is that they are unified in purpose, even though they seem to be dissenting about the specifics and particulars. It's it's kind of a more nuanced and complex thing that I tend to see. Just because someone is a skeptic doesn't mean they don't believe. It means they are skeptical and want to be a little bit more uh, duly diligent about proving something true or untrue, for that matter. And that's how Jannar comes across. By contrast, Degra is totally the, the true believer. You know, the, the Scully and the Mulder, basically. Except that's not a good comparison, because Scully wasn't a believer. But you, you get my point, right? <sighs> Anyways, so we see him. We get some characterization for Jannar, which I just discussed. This then leads to Jannar saying, maybe you could demonstrate your ability to time travel. Daniels? Daniels? Nope. Worthless as always. Thanks, Daniels. Appreciate it. So instead, there's this bit where they go back and forth. This is part of why I wanted to talk about Jannar here, because Jannar feels a little bit more like a politician. He's playing his cards close to his chest, and they're doing a little bit of a song and dance verbally, kind of verbal sparring. Degra jumps in and literally cuts right through that. Just immediately is like, the weapon's going to be ready in a couple days. We're going to try and delay that. Show me your freaking proof. What's interesting about Degra is he is incredibly driven. He's very to the point. This has been true consistently, even back when he was being portrayed as the main big bad. Was He was, let's do this, let's do this, let's do this. Very quick, very efficient, very patterned mind. This is interesting, but for reasons I'll get to in just a minute. So, this cuts to Tucker and to Paul. Their daughter's dead. Why would they care what I have to say? We also find out that he has been without sleep for two days. She is like, you you need to sleep. And she's right. Again, there's a point of diminishing returns when not eating and not drinking and not sleeping, you, you just aren't doing good work anymore. In some cases, you might actually be doing bad work and causing negative progress. This is one of the reasons why I tend to speak up so much against crunch as a concept is because crunch goes very contrary to this very basic, very logical human principle. The more we push ourselves, the less well we do, past a certain point. Knowing your limits, that's a thing. I work like crazy. I work 12-hour days during these flood guide cycles. I would like to think I still put out decent quality stuff. Feel free to tell me I'm wrong. You know, all of these all of these YouTube recordings are done during these 12-hour day sessions. But these only last, on average, about a month at a time. And I take very careful efforts to eat well stretch regularly, and take naps. I actually take a nap in the middle of the day, and I get a good amount of sleep in the evening. The cost is I don't do anything else. I don't play video games. I don't hang out with my friends. I don't take care of my sister. I don't do anything. That's that's the, the cost. But I'm not complaining. What I'm trying to explain is that I manage myself very carefully to make this happen, and even then, it's for a short period of time. Now imagine that I don't have any of that, that I just have to work 24-hour days for multiple days in a row, no nap, no proper food, no able to take a moment to myself, no actual good sleep schedule, no regular stretches, nothing. 
that would be unacceptable, and that would officially be crunch at that point. And hey, that's what Tucker's going through. And thus we see how much it's affecting him, not just mentally and emotionally, but his literal ability to function. As if to undercut this, there's a with the, uh, oh, I wrote it, it as a coolant, the edec coolant problem. This then leads to a shot of the outside, and there's a little bit of a spark, a little vent. It's venting out into space there. They then cut to Archer giving proof to them. Now, I've heard some people argue this in the past, that Archer probably should have started strong rather than starting weak. Shrug? I don't know. But either way, his approach is to start weak and then to slowly get to more and more concrete evidence as he goes. I'm not sure that was the proper path, but, you know, whatever. He shows them the reptilian evidence, and they're like, okay, well, the reptilians existed, the bioweapon existed, the only lasting impact of Carpenter Street right here in this one scene, by the way. And, okay, we've proven that the reptilians went against the council. Okay, that's good. We now have that proof. This is now something that is shown in addendum to what we already knew. And, and remember, they were already kind of thinking against the reptilians. So... Remember, they're already kind of on Archer's side. They're just demanding proof, which really isn't unreasonable given the circumstances. It's not that hard to picture. Just flip it. The Zindi show up. We didn't actually launch the weapon. We're not really your enemies. What? You you killed seven million people? No, trust me, it wasn't us. Let me show you this proof. Here's some people from the past who time-traveled. We time-traveled too, but we can't prove that right now. I mean, it's not hard to per perceive that, right? This then leads to the Seth MacFarlane cameo. It's awesome to see him. And there's the lack of sleep problem again. Phlox actually threatens to get security in on this, which, yeah. And then hard bargains. And Archer's like, you should come down here. And Phlox is like, okay. And Phlox just stands right there. Tucker's like, you, you need to go? No. Go to sleep, Tucker. You do need to take care of yourself. Diminishing returns. Even if you don't care about... Like, personality or perspective or intangible things like quality of life or anything like that. Even from a purely objectively practical perspective, get some damn rest. You need it. You are not that useful anymore because of it. So, then we get to the next bit of proof. The, uh, oh, no, no, then we get the vent. Then we cut away to the vent, which gets worse. Then we cut back. We see the dead Tutarian, and they talk about the specifics of that. That evidence is starting to get a lot stronger at this point. It's like, okay, so this is uh, the actual dead Tutarian who was sent over here. Here's the biological stuff. Here's the universal stuff. Here's the thing. Here's here's the evidence that they are most like, very likely, based on their evidence, attached to the creation of the spheres because of this and this and this. And this is done to restabilize space for them and destroy it for us because this and this and this. Much more concrete evidence, much more inclined to believe. This uh, leads to the dream sequence. Now, obviously, Tucker's talking to himself here, which frames this whole thing a little bit differently. Because as she mentions all these things that are about, you know, their connection to each other, you know, just, just, just tell them about this or tell them about that, Right? Tell them, tell them anything. Just remember me. Is that so hard? Yes. <laughs> Real small thing. Kiplia Brown, I really hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, is actually pretty cool. Uh, not only is she in Star Trek Continues, but far more importantly, in my opinion, she's in Star Trek Online. She voices, I don't remember how to pronounce this, Kumarke. 
I hope I'm pronouncing that at least partially correctly. She was a part of an entire story arc in uh, just after the Delta Quadrant stuff, right when the Temporal Cold War stuff was happening in STO. I'm not going to spoil her role, but she's actually one of the better uh, new characters, you know, new NPCs that STO introduces to the series, and she's kind of awesome. There's this whole arc there. It's cool stuff. It's making me want to replay the arc, to be honest. She does a great job there, though, so definite A+. Anyways, <clears throat> so... This then leads to Jannar and Degra arguing. This is when I made my point earlier. And Degra's over on the ship as they're trying to figure out the data from the spheres. Tucker just can't help himself. He can't help but provoke and push and argue and do that kind of passive-aggressive-y thing, you know? Both Archer and DePaul have to shut him down here. Now, do you blame Tucker? Honestly, under normal circumstances, someone like Tucker would probably be, hell, any human being would probably be, you know, in a little provoky kind of a mood. Never mind the lack of sleep, never mind the dire circumstances and this letter which is hanging over him and the real problem which is still bothering him. All of this crap just sitting there, of course he's going to spit. Of course he's going to slash, you know, at Degra because... He's barely dealing with all of this as is. And, well, we like to personify. We like to look at an individual and say, you are responsible for this. When reality doesn't adhere to that. You know, thousands, if not millions of people made that weapon and made this decision and made this happen. But Degra's right there. I've talked about this a lot. How we like our figures, both for praise and for blame. And I try to work against this myself. Uh, I don't always succeed because, unfortunately, thanks to how our culture works here in the States, most of the time there's not a lot of information or documentation about the people who aren't the big names. So I can give you actors, directors, writers, and that's usually as far as I can go. Thankfully, in TOS, I was able to bypass that because there's a lot of information on the people who worked in the lighting or the cameras or whatever, or the set design or the prop design. So I could give them proper praise. Here, it's just like, well... <laughs> But my point is, especially when we're angry, we tend to really fixate on that individual, that one person, and not really think about the 50 people who are supporting that one person and doing all those terrible things, or doing those things we disliked. I mean, you can't hurt 50 people, but you can hurt a person. So, this then leads to... <laughs> when the vent finally erupts. All right, quick, quick nitpick. Why, why are the cutoffs on the outside of the ship? Okay, got that out of the way. <clears throat> I mean, what? For once, the threat... There's actually two threats in this episode, as I already mentioned. Both of them are actually directly tied into themes and actually have a purpose other than being something to you know, have an action sequence in the final act. In this case, this threat is extremely obvious, but nevertheless a good, I'd say at least a decent representation threat. Because what this threat is, is Tucker. This is Tucker. It starts as a little thing, but it goes unnoticed. Nobody's aware of it, so it gets worse. So nobody's aware of it, nobody's addressing it, so it gets much worse and nearly destroys the whole ship. Until they barely deal with it in time because it was unaddressed for so long. Sound familiar? Remember, Tucker's been going through his arc since Season 2. The end of Season 2, but it stands. This, uh, this leads to an interesting scene. 
What is sure to piss someone off who's already angry? Now, that this isn't 100% true. It's probably more just like 75% true. But sympathizing with them. Oh, I'm so sorry for your loss. What do you know about my loss? You know, that kind of a thing. Degra shows sympathy and Tucker explodes at him. Now, Archer has to tell him to stand down because, you know, they're trying to make peace here. But what I find most interesting is that this actually helps sell Degra on their side. Degra... He reminds me of Doc Brown over in Back to the Future. Because they're both towering intellects. Incredible geniuses in their own right. Very precise, very driven. But both are ultimately very personal as well. They care about the individual. They care about the intangible. Their perspective is very down-to-earth, despite being involved in such macroscopic proportions. He's doing this for his children, remember. And that's one of the biggest things that has pushed him in this direction from day one. Seeing one person who is visibly hurt by the loss of his sister because of what Degra did assuredly pushes Degra more into the camp of trying to make this alliance work. Frankly, I think that if Tucker had not exploded at him, he would not have had the emotional core and the mental decision having already been made to commit to destroying the reptilian ship at the end of the episode, and that might have been game. It must be a horrible thing to be so smart and so personal at the same time. To be able to look at the, the numbers and the long term and the cold calculus, but to care about the individual. It's got to be terrible. Notice, by the way, that Archer really did go full in on the total honesty thing and the openness thing. Volunteered the information from Stratagem that he mind-wiped mind him and tried to coerce him and all that fun stuff. And that's... Yeah, <laughs> that's cute. This also leads to a surprising moment of connection between Archer and Degra. If these are surprising scans for a warship, this was actually an exploration ship. Hopefully it will be again someday. One scientist to another, sort of. <laughs> this this then leads to Tucker, who is just failing at writing this letter, still. Then the reptilians show up. Now, the reptilians are another threat. How do they find them? Never explained. Here's, another, here's a bonus question. What if they didn't find them per se? What if they were just visiting the sphere? Remember, they mentioned how none of them really interact with the spheres regularly. What if the reptilians have been regularly interacting with the spheres? Just food for thought. Well, we might address this in the future. I don't know if it comes up, but one way or another, they find them. So then they have to pull this whole thing, and then, you know, they destroy them because, and I quote, I had no choice. Once again, that theme continues to crop up, and now that we're in the actually good episodes of season three, it's actually being used properly. I did what I had to do. This continues to be a circumstance situation, a dilemma situation. There's not a lot of bad guys on the board. There's two, really. Two bad guys. There's the Reptilians and there's the Tutarians, and that's kind of it. Everyone else is just people who are miscommunicating or misunderstanding or misinformed, deliberately deceived, and are being shoved against each other. Boy, doesn't that sound familiar. 
This leads to the best scene in the episode. Now, most of this episode has been, okay, you know, there's some, some good stuff. But this final scene is what really pushes this one up there and maintains the quality of this trilogy for me. Tucker is over there, and he's talking, and he rants, and he kicks the power supply, and if you pay attention, his mouth doesn't move because they, they dubbed the audio and the visual separately. But what happens is he finally, finally, finally openly acknowledges what he has been avoiding since season two, since he yelled at Reed about that all the way back then. <sighs> this is an emotional scene. It legitimately pulled tears out of me. No judgment, no no shame. And, of course, it's between Tucker and T'Pol, the characters who probably have the best chemistry of the whole cast, so that, that helps. And you'll notice, if before I go on, she actually lays a hand on his shoulder in as close to a hug as she can probably manage in this moment. Since, remember, she's barely dealing with her emotions, too. Look at her face as she's just holding back, struggling not to, to sob, as Tucker is sobbing. And he just, he grabs her hand like... Oh. And just that moment... By the way, this is a good time to remind you that Vulcans have a big deal about touch. They don't like to touch, you know, partially because of the... You know, the, the tactile telekinesis thing, or excuse me, the tele telepathy thing. And partially because it's just kind of their culture. They're very contained. They don't do that. There's a reason why this is how they hold hands, right? So the mere fact that she did that at all is itself indicative. Never mind how she did it. Seven million people dead. But all you can think about is one person. God, that's got to feel terrible. That's got to feel so guilt-inducing, so aggravating. What is wrong with me? Why am I so upset about this one person? She was just one other person. There's so many dead people. <laughs> this is the second time I have referenced this with regards to this season. Morden really puts this into perspective back in Mass Effect 2. It's hard to anthropomorphize 7 million people. So you don't. Instead, you just picture the one. Favorite nephew. Favorite sister. This is the problem that Tucker's been walking into over and over and over. It's very human. Of course he feels guilty. He probably feels like crap. How dare I feel bad about my one life when so many lives have been taken? And again, what is wrong with me? I, I don't have the right to even speak of this. What does my pain matter compared to that? The irony, of course, though, irony is the wrong word. The paradox is that even in the macro, the micro matters. Just as is within the micro, the macro matters. Both matter. Your pain matters. Just because it's less than other pain, just because there's people starving over there, people dying over there, does not make your pain stop mattering. It doesn't prevent it from being relevant. It doesn't make it wrong to feel it, to hurt from it, to endure it, to try and do better because of it. Now, you don't want to go too far. You don't want to get lost in it, to sw swim in it, or use it to, to, to personal effect or whatever, to victimize. But we have a tendency, at least in the country I live in, to look down upon people 
societally and, and, and personally for daring to speak up about something that bothers them. How many times have you seen a conversation where someone says, man, I'm tired or I'm hungry. Or, I haven't eaten in X hours. And someone else just immediately tries to one up them. Ah, I stubbed my toe early. I think that's bad. I actually broke my arm yesterday. And it just escalates. It's this natural tendency to force people to feel bad about daring to complain. How dare you man up? There's nothing wrong with feeling your own pain. There's nothing wrong with caring about your own pain. Within reason. It's obvious Tucker is a decent person. Hence why I can say this so definitively in his case. He obviously cares about that seven million. He obviously desperately wants this to not happen again. But God's sakes, let yourself feel. And, of course, Tucker has to open up about feeling something he has been preventing himself from feeling to a Vulcan. And, you know, obviously, to Paul's specific arc there is very personally relevant to this, too. So while this is not quite the level of quality of the previous two episodes, I still think this is among my favorite Enterprise, and I stand by that. This is some good stuff. Bye, Elizabeth. Next week, another episode. I... I don't know if the next one's filler or not. I think it is. We'll find out when we get there. I don't remember it all that well. But I do know the last three. We're in the last four at this point. I do know the last three are a trilogy. So it'll be interesting to see if this is a bump in the road or if this is a nice breather episode before we get to the big plunge. I hope, as ever, you have enjoyed. See you next time.